0: Tremendous amount of work has gone into making worship services possible and here. Are so many things that have happened behind the scenes, and we're grateful that finally, uh, here after a number of years, we're able to begin studying the Word together on Sunday evenings. And I'm um, looking forward to doing what we'll call thematic exposition, taking themes and going to the text of Scripture to find out what they have to say about it. Why don't we pray before we launch this uh, study? Father, thank You for the privilege we have of gathering together here in this assembly. Thank You for being such a gracious and loving God. Help us to begin to understand a little better through our singing in this assembly and fellowship together and then learning from the Word what it means when we say that God loves us. And even more than that, that we're to love one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There was uh, once a city that if you'd lived in the first century, you, you would have known about. It was a fast, loud, uh, sensual, commercial city. Metropolis. It was devoted to culture and sports and commerce. I have never been there, but I have read a lot about it. It could have easily been called the Vanity Fair of uh, the ancient world. It would have been uh, the sailor's favorite port. It would have been a policeman's nightmare. It would have been an actor's dream spot. It would have been a merchant's gold mine. It would have been a prodigal's paradise. By the time Paul wrote to the believers in this city, it had gained the reputation of being the vice capital of ancient Greece. Corinth was its name. It was also the first city, if you can imagine this, to admit the gladiatorial games where competitors would die for the bloodlust of the spectator. This was Las Vegas and San Francisco and the back alleys of most major cities all sort of combined. Corinth was, was well known for being a sinful city. In fact, if you wanted to tell a person to go to the devil in Paul's day, you would simply tell him to Corinthianize. If you wanted to refer to a woman as being loose, you called her a Corinthian girl. Even their religious worship to Aphrodite and the goddesses had organized brothels with temple prostitution as part of their so-called religious service. This culture was literally bloated with lust for blood and, and lust for money and lusting after the flesh. In the middle of this culture, though, was something almost unbelievable. It was almost unimaginable. It was the revolutionary work of the liberating gospel of Jesus Christ. There was a church in the middle of this city, an assembly of of redeemed, liberated, forgiven, imperfect, growing, needy sinners now called by this apostle saints. Its charter members If you want to see who they were, you'll discover a list of them in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. These were men and women who had past lives of of immorality and infidelity and homosexuality. There were former thieves. In fact, the Greek word refers to a man who steals with the use of violence. There were alcoholics. There were white-collar criminals. Just look at the list. Do you not know, verse 9, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, that's sexual relations outside of marriage, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, that's sexual relations with married, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, but such were some of you. This is the list of charter members in this assembly. Such were some of you. In other words, this is what you used to be until you were washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the Spirit of our God. So you have in this church felons who are now serving as deacons. You have former thieves who are counting the offering. Isn't that great? You have former drunkards who are now teaching children in Sunday school. They had come to find their true satisfaction and liberation and forgiveness in the blood of Jesus Christ. So in the middle of the city, you have this church. Wisdom got an email from a man who was moving into town, had heard me on the radio, and he wanted to know if our church accepted same-sex couples, I wrote them back and said anyone and everyone is invited to attend our services, and we throw the doors open to the community at large. But to be accepted into our church as a member means that you have accepted the authority of the Word of God. And I told him, we take the Bible literally here, and it clearly informs us that any sexual activity outside of marriage is forbidden, whether homosexual or Heterosexual. Beyond that, the Bible clearly informs us I wrote that homosexual relations is sinful, and I sent him to read Romans chapter 1. I invited him, but I wanted to inform him that the gospel of Christ is both forgiving and demanding. We who believe have come under the authority of the word of God. So Paul did not write to them, and such Are some of you still, you can keep stealing, you can keep fornicating with others who aren't married, you can commit adultery with those who are, you can keep on reviling, you can keep on abusing, you can keep on swindling other people out of their money. No, he wrote, but such were some of you. These are Corinthians who are now rescued by the grace of God. We're in the process, by the way, of helping to start a church in in Vegas. We're supporting Matt Petit, the church planter. What a great place to start a church. Uh, We don't believe that commercial that says, whatever you do here stays here. We don't believe that. In fact, we believe... That everything you do, there or anywhere, is all recorded in a book of deeds that will be opened at the final judgment where the unbelieving world is proven that they have defiled the image of God in their own lives. They have defiled the purpose of God for their own bodies. They have refused the authority of God's Word in their own minds. Everything you do is remembered. Well, this church in Las Vegas is 16 months old and it has already grown to over 200 people, and they're seeing one rescue after another. Las Vegas, by the way, is the leader per capita in rape and armed robbery and divorce. One older man, David, our outreach pastor, was telling me he'd spent several years in prison for armed robbery. Matt led he and his family to faith in in Christ and And they were among the first to be baptized. The whole family had come to faith in Christ. And from what I, I was told, the transformation of this family has been undeniable to everyone around them. And they are now faithful members of the church. But listen, let me add this. Just because you've come to faith in Jesus Christ does not mean you know how to live for Christ. Repenting of your sins does not create an automatic awareness of how to live a holy life and, and, and all of the past temptations are just sort of set aside and you never wrestle over uh, the drink or the relationship or, 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 the, or the cheat or the stealing. When you get saved, you begin the process of, of, of becoming like Christ. It isn't the, the, the last step. Coming to faith in Christ is the first step. Desiring to live a holy life for Christ is is not the end. It is the beginning of your life. The writer of Hebrews put it this way, the mature are those who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. It's going to take persistence. It's going to take practice. I'm sure we have some members of Greenhouse, and if you've been through it, you've probably heard me ask this question, and I'll, I'll repeat it And here. How many of you in this auditorium at some point in your lives in the distant past or maybe the near future took piano lessons? Raise your hands. Look at all the outstanding <laughs> pianists, the proficient, skilled musicians, who are standing in line for Lynn to get sick or go on vacation? No, no, no. How many in here are proficient, skilled pianists? Raise your hand. Three. The difference between us and them. Uh, 400 people, I think, who raised their hands, and and three is one word. Practice. How many of you quit because you hated to practice? All 400 of you, huh? (laughs) I shared with a greenhouse class this past week that when I went to college, I had had nine years of piano. I thought my parents invested so much in me, and I'd gotten old enough to realize that they had invested in me, and I thought, well... I'll go ahead and take piano lessons. And so I asked some of the students around the, the campus who was the best piano teacher in the faculty. I went to a small Baptist college, and so there weren't many of them. And they all told me the same name, Mrs. Herman. Mrs. Herman's the best. So I went and knocked on her studio door, and uh, she came to the door, and I said, Mrs. Herman, I introduced myself. I understand you're just a fantastic piano teacher, and I, I want to take some piano lessons i played in the past. And she said, I'm sorry, I'm completely full. In fact, she was in the middle of a lesson. And I said, well, oh, i would heard you the best and, and uh, told her a little bit. I could tell she wasn't that interested. And I said, well, would you mind if I just sat down and played something for you? And she said, well, okay. And I sat down and played for a few minutes and she said, I'll take you. I'll make room in my schedule for you, but you need to know that next week we will begin lessons. She was an older lady a very matter of fact, and very matter-of-fact, and she said, "We're going to begin lessons next week, and, and I want you to, you need to understand that in order to take lessons from me, you're going to be expected to practice four hours." And I said, that's, "That's great. Four days out of seven an hour a day, that's no problem." And she said, "No, young man, I mean four hours a day." My life flashed before my eyes at that moment. (laughs) I couldn't imagine any torture greater than that. No one in their right mind will do anything for four hours a day except play golf, and I don't do that either, (laughs) right? So we agreed to part ways, and my mastery over the piano ended. It ended. You need to understand that what the Apostle Paul is about to deliver to this congregation is not something they really will ever master, but it is something that they are supposed to practice. And they're to practice and practice and practice. Not for an hour a day, not four hours a day, but every hour of every waking day. They're to practice. And what is it they're to practice? What will revolutionize this church and any church? True, genuine, Authentic lives marked by love. Paul will deliver to them one of the most remarkable, radical, reforming chapters or pieces of prose that you'll find in any of his letters. You already know where I'm going, so turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is referred to as the love chapter. Some call it the love hymn. And it is. It's beautiful prose. Paul says, in effect, in the first few verses, listen, everybody, I don't care who you are, I don't care how connected you are, I I don't care how much you own or have, if you do not operate in the principle and upon the foundation and through the motivation of love, you are nothing. Verse 1, you accomplish nothing. Verse 2, you are nothing. Verse 3, you profit nothing. This is why we have to practice it, because life without love adds up to zero. It doesn't matter who you are, rich, poor, educated, illiterate. It doesn't matter if you're married or single, young or old. Life apart from love is nothing. Now, the reason that we have a hard time buying that or even believing it is because we don't understand what Paul meant when he begins to talk about what love is. In this chapter, Paul will introduce them to a brand new concept. It will be a word ignored entirely by the Corinthian culture, in fact, the Greco-Roman world, but this Singular word, agape, embraced by the inspiring Holy Spirit will be the primary word that will become the vehicle to explain the gospel. It will become the vehicle wherein we as disciples live and breathe and act. It is this Greek word, agape. All we have time to do today is simply introduce this rich word, translated more than 300 times over and over again in the New Testament. In fact, the next word used is only used 45 times, philia. In short, this word describes the selfless, committed love of the intellect and the will which places value upon the beloved, whether or not they are deserving or if they're even able or unable to to return the same. For God so what? Loved the world that He gave. Just how attractive was the world when He gave? Just how able was the world to return that quality back to God? Just how deserving was the world that God would love? A derivative of agape. The Corinthians, by the way, didn't understand true love. In fact, of all the words and expressions for love in the first century, agape never made the list. Listen to this. Agape rarely appears outside of the Greek New Testament. In fact, one Greek scholar, Gerhard Kittel, in his Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, made the comment that there is not one clear example of agape by a Greek author outside of Scripture not one it was ignored completely it was considered too unemotional it was considered too intellectual there were several other words in the greek vocabulary translated love that were highly prized and so let me very quickly give you an overview the first was the word storge this was a greek word that referred as it was preferred to natural love or family love. You love your Uncle Henry and your Grandma Ethel and all your cousins with this kind of love. You love them because, well, they're, they're your grandma and grandpa and your uncle and aunt and your cousins. Uh, you stick up for your sister and brother with his family love, even though around the house you tell them to stay out of your room, just don't pick on them outside, or you'll defend them. Right? This is this is love that one author said is like the law of gravitation. It just it's there. These people are related to you. This is the word for the love that causes a, a mother to naturally want to take care of her newborn child. This is the natural love that causes a man to sacrifice time and effort to pr- to provide for his. His family. What's interesting is that Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 is that as society continues to grow more and more depraved, more and more perverted, more and more self-centered, that one of the obvious results would be that people would no longer evidence storge. They would no longer have natural affection, which is how it is translated. They have no storge. Children will be cruel to parents. And leave them without care. Parents will abandon their children. They will deliver newborns and put them in the dumpster without any thought. Child abuse will arise as well as the abuse of the elderly. Husbands and wives will will kill one another for insurance money. These are the signs that storge is on the wane. There's really nothing wrong with this word. It's a love that produces natural protection. However, what makes storge work best is when it is founded upon agape, when the foundation for natural family love is built upon the selfless, compassionate, willful, servant love of agape. Another Greek word is philia, which gives us words like Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. This is the kind of love that bound people together who like the same things, who preferred the same hobbies. This is the love of mutual attraction. This this love is fondness. This is, uh, Kenneth Weiss says, affection and liking. Leon Morris wrote that this love is built on common interest or common tastes. Philea means, I love that shirt. Or I love that necktie, Bob. That's a sharp necktie. I like that. He likes that too. So we like the same thing. That, that's like saying, I love I love apple pie. I love I love Krispy Kreme. I really love that's agape, actually. <laughs> I'm committed to that. That's I love Beethoven. And you find people that love the same kinds of things. This is just sort of mutual attraction. This is the common expression used today for for love. Basically, what somebody is saying, though, when it's used outside of agape is, I love you because you are like me. We like the same stuff. Can I I step on some toes for just a minute? Thank you. (laughs) This is e-harmony love. I hope nobody's wasted their money in here, and you're just going to feel so badly. No, let me, let me. I'm serious. You find somebody who has twenty or thirty of the same answers to questions for stuff that you would answer in the same way. You're you're both morning people that like coffee and laughter, and you have the same family values and the same view of God. As if some guy's going to fill out this form and say, "I have no sense of humor, and I'm a grouch in the morning. <laughs> I hate babies." I'd rather spend time on a fishing boat than chasing you around the mall. No, he's going to say I love sunsets and long walks in the rain and kittens. He's lying. He is lying. A couple came up to me a, a few months ago after I'd mentioned D Harmony in one of the morning services and they were laughing and they said, Stephen, we, we met, we, we met through eHarmony, but then she looked at me and, and uh, she and he, they kind of came close and she said, are we ever different from one another? Philea is that kind of pursuit. It's the common love of the Corinthian culture and the American culture. It basically says, I love you because you love everything I love. Now, it is a love drawn together by the strings of common affection, and it's not all bad. In fact, it's used 45 times in the New Testament to speak of community love, to speak of friendly love, to speak of affection for someone that is the outgoing of one's heart in delight to see them happy. That's where you, as a husband or wife, choose to like things that your spouse likes, because you do have love for them. The trouble comes when the other person doesn't return happiness. The trouble comes when they don't make philia worthwhile, when they are unworthy. This is why the love of our culture, which is primarily storge and philia, at best runs out of steam and lovers are replaced as quickly as used automobiles. See, we grew apart. We don't like the things we used to like together anymore. So it runs out of gas. The world can only wonder why they run out of steam. Love that is philia only is why one actress I read about recently was being interviewed. She said her relationships are really great for about three months, and they're over. She said the fireworks are gone. This is why the excitement and thrill of love disappears at the sight of an overflowing diaper pail. That's a romantic thought for you. If philia draws you together, well, all of a sudden, that isn't, you know, that there's, this is how a book can actually be written last year and purchased by people, enough so that it makes the best-selling list, where they are suggesting that what you really need is to plan for three spouses over the course of your lifetime. You have one spouse for child-rearing years. You have another for the middle years of busyness and contracts and and social climb, and then you have your third spouse in later years when you're ready for the sailboat and the golf course and the rocking chair. Why? Because love is all about you. It's all about somebody meeting your needs and making you feel happy. What they're really saying with this word is when they say, I love you, they're saying, I love me, and I want you because you make me feel better. Just read the lyrics of the most popular songs on the subject of love. It's been reduced to a search for that never-ending warm and fuzzy state, right? I'm hooked on a feeling, and I can't stop loving you. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm stuck in the 70s, I know, but... (laughs) The young kids are going, what? She loves you, yeah. You remember this one? Why do birds suddenly appear every time you are near? Just like you, me, I'm sorry, they want to be close to you. You know, that's sad, let me tell you. (laughs) That is scary. Anybody ever thought about that, though? You ever thought about that? Would I mean, you fall in love with a guy where birds are following him everywhere he goes? <laughs> Didn't Alfred Hitchcock do a movie on that? <laughs> but that was the '60s and the '70s. You know, now we're sophisticated, and now, oh, we we got it together, really. When well, now you can look up lyrics on the internet, which I spent about thirty minutes doing, and the best-selling songs still define love in terms of philia, alone. What that means is you got to be a great catch if you want to catch a great girl or a guy. It means you got to be sharp. means you got to be rich. you got to have status or reputation. Here's a song I came across on an album called Big Dog Daddy. <laughs> now one of my all-time favorites, I can assure you. It's a song about a guy who is a custodian. And the girl he loves is beautiful and self-centered, and he sings his lament about his sad state. She won't look my way, but buddy, what, what would you expect? I'm just the fix-it-up boy at the apartment complex. It's actually pretty good poetry when you think about it. He says, I'm just sitting around waiting on a telephone call after a water pipe exploded in the living room wall. If your washer and dryer need a repair, you know your handyman's waiting, and it'll be right there. Then he sings his problem. Here it is. She's my baby doll, my beauty queen. She's my movie star, best I've ever seen. I ain't asked her out yet. Because I don't know if I can. See, it's just a high-maintenance woman don't want no maintenance man. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to frame that. That's a good piece of poetry. (laughs) Poor guy. But it's so descriptive. It is so descriptive of the wrong side of philia. I mean, a love that loves only the lovely, only the attractive, only somebody who's going to advance the reputation and self-image, only the popular. So we're attracted in this society which is far from classless. It's prejudiced. It's self-centered. It measures people by what they own and have and how they look. Friendship based on philia alone, as the ancients used to say in Paul's day, listen, becomes a school of virtue, but it can also be a school of vice. Friendship like this can make good men better and bad men worse. That's why the Bible, especially Proverbs, says so much about who your friends are, who you've allowed to influence your life. You attract people to you because of who you are, and you're all self-centered. You're only going to become more self-centered. They will not make you better. They will make you worse. Now, the good side of philia is the natural affection between friends who bond with mutual likes and dislikes, but it has to challenge each other to grow in greater and deeper agape love for Christ and His church, one another. One final word that is perhaps the most unlike agape and yet the most well-loved by the world is the Greek word eros. It gives us our word erotic. This is sensual, uh, sexual love. Contained within marriage, it is the gift of God for affection and pleasure. What's interesting is that this word was the most commonly used word for love in Paul's day, and yet, follow this, the Holy Spirit did not select this word in any passage of love in the New Testament, not even once. What the world is Craving never appears in the New Testament. So, what the world and the flesh clamor for, the New Testament descriptions ignore. So, we have to find out what eros means by going outside of the New Testament. Now, that doesn't mean that the word is inherently evil. Romantic, sexual, or sensual love is at best with agape and commitment and marriage wonderful, pure, and lofty. In fact, the Song of Solomon doesn't use the word, but it describes eros. It is considered a virtue. But the fact that the New Testament never selects this word ought to tell us that the world and even the church, have you noticed? The church now is focused on one aspect of love that is actually secondary and not foundational. Without agape, eros is self-seeking, self-centered, abusive, possessive love. But combined with a will to serve and commit, eros makes a man swim an ocean. It makes you climb a mountain, cross a desert to win that husband or wife. Without agape, eros only lusts to own, to have to conquer, and then it will discard you for some newer model. Since eros has such strong emotion that comes naturally from, from the flesh, the world of Paul and our world even today consider it tantamount, equal to love. It's the measure of love. It's the litmus test for love. It's, it's the fireworks that determine if it's the genuine item. The Greeks viewed love and defined eros as, quote, intoxication, where the senses are in a frenzy. So our world today pursues it and wonders why it is so fleeting. Here's a best-selling song from another artist who describes his love for a girl he never will commit to, but he keeps coming back to her. Gary Allen sings, I got lightning in my veins, thunder in my chest, all tangled up with you and trying to catch my breath. I've been chasing that sensation halfway around the world. I've done it all. I've seen it all. But I can't find a feeling like that. This is selfish love that pursues the intoxicated feeling, which is considered the litmus test for true love. All you have to do is check your pulse. You... You make me have lightning in my veins and thunder in my chest. How does that work when she's been in labor for 18 hours? Huh? That'll redefine thunder and lightning, won't it? (laughs) How does it hold up when he's been laid off and the car's been repossessed and all he can give you is hand-me-down clothing? Oh, was he a catch or what? Huh? Eros, and I just wrote some sentences out, and we've got to wrap this thing up, but I just wrote some sentences out about what Eros knows nothing of. Eros knows nothing of emergency rooms, house payments, and braces. Eros has no time for homework or late hours, broken down cars, and used furniture. Eros is bored with arthritis. Eros colors gray hair and sells steroids, tummy tucks, and Rolexes. Eros is fashion and beauty. It is for the attractive and the well-connected. But Eros eventually makes everyone lose what they'd hope to have. Let me review. Storge says, I love you because you belong to my family. Agape says, I love you and I'm going to treat you as if you are a member of my family. Phileas says, I love you because you are like me. Agape says, I love you even though you are unlike me. Eros says, I love you because you meet my needs and make my heart beat fast. Agape says, I love you, and I commit my heart to meeting your needs. Agape is true love. I found the lyrics to another song familiar to most of us. This one written by a Christian artist who understood a little better what agape in a relationship looked like. It goes like this. Tomorrow morning, if you wake up and the sun does not appear... I will be here. If in the dark we lose sight of love, hold my hand and have no fear, because I will be here. I will be here when you feel like being quiet. When you need to speak your mind, I will listen. And I will be here when the laughter turns to crying. Through the winning, losin', and tryin', We'll be together. I will be here. Tomorrow morning, if you wake up and the future is unclear, I will be here. Just as sure as seasons were made for change, our lifetimes were made for these years, so I will be here. I will be here, and you can cry on my shoulder. When the mirror tells us we're older, I will hold you, and I will be here to watch you grow in beauty, tell you all the things you are to me. I will be here. I will be true to the promises I have made to you and to the One who gave you to me. Tomorrow morning, if you wake up, and the sun does not appear i will be here i will be here ladies and gentlemen the world can only long to find love like that that's why back in corinth and here in carry the christian who comes out of his culture and into a church must learn and must practice how to love like that, And that's why God will so clearly spell it out for us in this great chapter on agape where Paul will deliver to us a radical description, God's description of genuine, authentic, true love. Thank you for your word, Father. And thank you that you knew that we would all have a have a distorted and twisted view of what it means when you say that you love us and you tell us to love one another. So we thank you for this truth. We thank you in Jesus' name.